Richard Alpern, Timothy Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a staff editor at SB Nation Mariners blog, Lookout Landing. He also served as the resident at Fangraphs for the month of May, the May resident at Fangraphs.com. It is Jake Mailhot. Jake Mailhot is the guest. And on this edition of the program, after becoming acquainted with Mailhot's writing uh, via the electronic pages, we become better acquainted with Mailhot himself. We discuss, for example, a lengthy mail correspondence in old Cantonese between his grandparents who emigrated the states from China at different times, his grandfather first to work here, and then his grandmother who followed, a lengthy correspondence currently being translated by his family. Uh, We discuss a different sort of correspondence, namely Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which, how much do you know about the Ephesians? And do you know where present-day Ephesus is, or Ephesus, or Ephesus, or Ephesus? It's in Turkey. It's in Turkey. But where in Turkey? It's in Turkey. Not entirely unrelated uh, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Not entirely unrelated. Edwin Diaz, right-handed pitcher for the Mariners. Edwin Diaz as religious experience. To what degree does Edwin Diaz and Edwin Diaz's fastball in particular facilitate religious experience? Jake Mailhot comments on all of that. We will get to that conversation momentarily. But first, it is both my pleasure and also my Professional obligation to note that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears in the electronic pages of Fangraphs. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, those same readers can acquire what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, 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 but also liberating one from the distorted effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-ad-free membership only at fangraphs.com. Go to that URL and click around a little bit. You'll find it. You will find it. With that advertisement complete, let us now move on to our conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Resident for the month of May. May resident Jake Mailhot. And when does it begin? Right now. I mean, not not just like facts, but like uh, like the very fundaments of their personality. Yeah, I mean, as as they grow older, I think age is one part of it. But I think that like uh, other fo- like I mean, age is essentially just what protracted brain damage, right? <laughs> I mean, isn't that what it is? It. Yeah, uh, you, I mean, you peak at a certain you peak at a certain age. Yeah, I like to think that I am in the middle of my peak. Can one be at the middle of a peak? Uh, is that is that how peaks work? Well, I mean, I've climbed my fair share of mountains, and there are some peaks that are flatter than others. That's a good point. Oh, God, I'm going to have to ask you about mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to listen to talk about mountains. Uh, you no, don't have okay. to. It's... No, I don't have to. But I it, no, I, I suppose like anything, if you are interested in it, then I'm... I'm willing to be interested in it. But if I look, if I gaze here, uh, as anyone's welcome to do, I guess, by going to twitter.com, Jake. Oh, well, let's, uh, first of all, a pronunciation check on your surname. Yes, it is Mailhot. The way it looks, unless it you're from Wisconsin or Minnesota, then it's Myatt. Or if you're from France, it's Mayo. Mayo, yeah. Now, uh, are your people from Wisconsin or Minnesota or France? The, the trail leads from France to um, Canada. And then from Canada to Wisconsin, Minnesota, that area, and then mm-hmm. from there to Washington. Oh, okay. Now, is uh, there's, uh, there's already so much to discuss here. Is uh, the best of your knowledge is Quebec to Wisconsin? Is that was that like a typical course that people took? For example, I live in Maine, and there are very mm-hmm. many people here of uh, Quebecois origin mm-hmm. uh, because it's very it's quite close. It's close, yeah. Yeah, but uh, did your people do that? I'm not sure what the general trends are. I All I know is that they were like homesteaders, I think, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. They, I mean, that's sort of, they just kept moving west as the rest of society moved west. And, yeah. uh, and then eventually they moved west again to Washington. Were they looking for opportunities, do you sense? Yeah, I would assume so. I mean, I was unfortunate enough to not know either of my grandparents on my father's side. And that's the side that is 
partially French and Canadian and whatnot. So mm-hmm. like that f- side of the family's story is pretty murky to me. Oh, is it from a lack of asking or do, no, no one wanting to tell you? Uh, I think it's both, a little bit of both. Is it? Do you think it's a dark history? I don't think it's particularly dark. No, okay. No, I, th- I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it was just never something that my dad and I talked about. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have like the those grandparents to like disseminate those family stories downwards. So, yeah, it just it was never really... Male hots. Part of it, yeah. Male I do hots, know yeah. a lot more about my other side, my mother's side, mainly because she's doing a ton of research into her family right now. And so it's been really, really fun and interesting to hear the origins of my – I'm half Chinese. My mom is um, first-generation Chinese-American. So she it's is. been really fascinating Ooh. to see like her family's transition from China to the U.S. There is uh, – so allow me to share with you – the, the very littlest I know about uh, immigration policy from the 19th century. <laughs> yes. But I know that like one of the first things that Americans did like in terms of when uh, as, well, I guess the legislature, when it first decided to curtail immigration in any way, they were like definitely no Chinese people. That was yes. kind of their first that was kind of their first move. Yes. They're like we everyone move. else, I guess, even dirty Italians, which I can which I can say because <laughs> I'm racist and Italian, but racist and um but uh no, they were definitely like uh, yeah, we got a, no, no Chinese people over here. Yeah, it was like a priority, I guess. Bizarre. So, yeah, the Chinese Exclusion Act, I forget when it was passed. It was the early 20th century. There were still like quota systems in place. So mm-hmm. that was the way that my grandfather came over. And he had been married to my grandmother in China and had come over to earn money and then make enough so that sh- that he could bring her, my grandmother over. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom had found a treasure trove of letters that they had written each other that she had no idea about, but they were going through some of their old possessions and they, and they found this giant collection of letters. And so she's going back and now translating them and it's in Cantonese and it's an old Cantonese. So it's an, an older dialect and it's an older writing system. And so they have to find a very like specialized translators to translate these letters. And she's connected with a few people at the uh, University of Washington and at Western Washington University um, who are helping her translate this family history. And yeah, it's been amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You're unlocking things. Yeah. And, and I suppose this is one of the sort of like unintended pleasures or maybe less obvious pleasures of being a human being, mm-hmm. is that normal things, once they age, they become special. Oh, right? absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, I mean, Western art to some, like any museum is basically founded <laughs> on this principle because you go and it's like, here's a pot. And which admittedly, like even pots, regardless of the rage, some, sometimes, especially if you've seen a whole bunch of them in one day, <laughs> you're like, pots can suck it after yeah. a while. Um, but that's basically, I mean, that's what Western is, right? Look, look at these pots. These were normal things to people right. uh, who lived, whatever, 2,500 years ago. And now you're looking at them. And it's simply because of the fact that so much time has elapsed in the meantime. Mm. But so less time has elapsed since these letters were authored. However, yes. The correspondence are of great interest to you and perhaps even greater interest to your mother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was sort of the same thing. I'd never met my grandparents on my mother's side either. They both died before I was born. And so it was the same sort of deal with my mom's side. We didn't really talk about that side of the family's history. Like I I knew it a little bit more just because I guess it was more interesting to me because it was it was sort of this immigration story. But mm-hmm. yeah, these letters and her research into her family's history has really uh, uncovered some really amazing things. Like her mother was incredibly well educated for the time that she was writing these letters. Like the the way that she writes is very poetic, and that just indicates a very high level level of education that was that was far more than the, the common Chinese woman at the time. So those those sort of like nuggets. Uh, mm-hmm. really shine a light into like a a, a history that was unknown uh, until now. Are these essentially are they are they love letters or are they something more mundane than that? Although I guess love I, letters could also be mundane. I think it's the a, way it's I write a l- them. A little yeah, bit of both. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, 
from the way that my mom, from the few that have been translated so far, it is, it's very much like, this is how this day has gone. And like, I'm telling you about the details of my life and because we're married and we're separated by a, a giant ocean. And so we just want to keep in touch that way. So there is, there is a, an element of that, but there's also like this other side of it. That's very, like I was saying, poetic and, and, and very much to people who are in love and, and wanting to share their lives together, even though they're separated by a great distance. Yeah. Uh, a distance that uh, definitely no, no shorter than no smaller than the Pacific ocean. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Has to be more than that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's as close as you can get. I mean, my f Chinese family is from the, like the southeast coast of China. And so mm -hmm. I guess it's as close as you can get to the coast on both sides. So, I mean, it's as short as it possibly could be. No, I, I have no uh, – I'm going to be learning. I'm going to use mm -hmm. this time to learn about it. But I don't know necessarily a lot about you as a person. If you're, uh, your, your grandparents have, uh, again, like – relatively speaking a kind of um kind of grand tale it sounds like right yeah moving moving places riding across oceans yes if they if they saw how you uh had chosen to spend your time <laughs> <laughs> uh, how would they uh how would they feel about it do you think um do you think you're trifling or would they be like yeah that's fine that's a that's an interesting question I think that they would be, I mean, I, I would have never pegged myself as a writer. Like I, I went to school to become a teacher and now I'm a writer. I, I write, I mean, I write about baseball. I also write a lot for my day-to-day -day job. I work at a publishing house. So I think that element of, of writing, I think they would be really interested in. I mean, because they wrote all these letters. And so I guess it's part of the family history is, is writing. So let's let's see. Let's start. Where where did you begin? Where did you start? Where did I start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, all the way back in the beginning, I was I was born in Seattle, Washington, and I've lived there pretty much my entire life. I moved up to Bellingham for college, and I West, Western Washington, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right, Western Washington. Yeah. The Go Vikings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I I fell in love with Bellingham. A lot of people try and stay in Bellingham, but the job market just isn't big enough to support all these graduates. And so mm -hmm. I was one of the lucky few who got to stick around. You uh, tell me about where from it's at. Now, I'll give you I'll give you um, this is the way I could understand it is I lived for a little while in Wallingford. Yeah. In the corner of Burke Ave and 50th. OK, I know where that is. OK, yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up. <laughs> In Shoreline, Washington, which is just a little bit north of that. Oh, okay. All right. Shoreline. Yes. Shoreline is its own. It's is it its own city? Yes. Oh, okay. It's its own city, but not far, not very far north. No, it's basically one of the first cities, independent cities, outside of the Seattle city limits. Oh, that's right. And you could take Aurora Avenue up there if mm -hmm. you want. That's right. Is that how you're going to get there? You think you're going to take Aurora? No, I take the I five. Aurora is just yeah. too busy, too many stoplights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not very pretty either. It's not. There's some weird... Uh, I just I remember Aurora being we a little weird. <laughs> a little strange. Yeah. Our, my high school was a block away from Aurora, and we okay. were we had a, a like three casinos, a strip club, and just... It was just... It was a bad area, and our high school was right next to that. <laughs> yeah, I remember... Yeah, Aurora... And like... There were places, though, so I would have been starting, I don't know, yeah, around 50th and going mm -hmm. north from there. There were places, there were like houses in some places, though. Yes. Along yeah, Aurora, and the speed limit had to have been, I mean, apart from the speed limit, like, people were traveling quite fast. So this is oh, one yeah. of those places where you, I don't, there's like, to me, there's no practical way to park your car if you were, if you lived on that. Or to, <laughs> to leave your driveway. Uh, I mean, I guess people do it, but it doesn't seem like it would be particularly enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, you just got to yeah. wait for those breaks in the traffic when the stoplights are red, I guess. A lot of yeah. waiting. A lot of waiting. So you take so you were born in Shoreline and I assume and uh, is that is that basically like living in Seattle? Is that yeah, pretty I mean, much. more or I less mean, is it for people much who aren't familiar with Seattle when I tell them where I grew up, I say I grew up in Seattle because it's basically mm -hmm. the same. Right. Okay. And so you were growing up in Seattle, all things being equal. Now, what were uh, I frequently ask for people, especially who are residents, what were your, like, what was your formative baseball experience? Like, there's usually a team, 
mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's usually a team where you're like, ah, yes, those are my guys. Like those are the ones I remember who kind mm-hmm. of against all other comers I, I'll compare. Yeah, I mean, I was so growing up in the mid '90s in Seattle. Obviously, the uh, 1995 team was was like that's like the the formative years of my of my Mariners fandom. Mm-hmm. Like Ken Griffey Jr. was I was a huge fan of Ken Griffey. I I went to Game Six of the ALCS when the Mariners lost to the Indians, and everyone was crying, and we sat around cheering the team even though we lost. But like those are like the earliest memories of of my like baseball fandom. My dad is a is a big baseball fan, and he so he sort of imparted that that love of the game onto me. I played baseball through high school. Um, I could I play softball all the way through college and I continue to play today. It's just, uh, yeah, it's something that my dad and I really enjoyed together and we'd go out and have a catch almost every day in the in the summer months when it was nice out. Yeah, and we'd watch the Mariners when we could. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, no, I, uh, I don't want to presume anything about your uh, relationship with your father, I, but I, uh, I will say that I noticed that that was one, it was like always a thing you could do to spend time, or it was always a thing I could do to spend time with my dad. Mm-hmm. Not that he was entirely unavailable emotionally, but like a, it's just like a thing to do. A, a yeah. catch is a thing to do. It's very convenient. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, like, and when we have limited time in the summer, like, <laughs> I mean, growing up in Seattle, there's only like four or five months of of nice weather, and so you got to pack in all the the outdoor activities into that that short time. So the '95 Mariners. You mentioned Ken Griffey Jr. That was mm-hmm. also let's see. Some it was a, it was some Vince Coleman as well apparently. <laughs> yes, Vince <laughs> Coleman. Yeah, I remember him. Uh-huh. That was some. Was there Cora? It was yeah, a Cora. Joey Cora. Fun story about Joey Cora. I when I was in Little League, Joey Cora used to put like these pins onto his hat, and mm-hmm. he would have one. I think he's Puerto Rican, and he would have like a Puerto Rican flag on his hat, and then a few other pins. So I thought that was awesome. So I put pins on my hat in Little League to emulate Joey Cora. I mean, there was no like injury. That I thought, I thought, and then, <laughs> and then diving, no. <laughs> diving no, for can't. a ball up the middle, I speared myself in the head. <laughs> that would be, yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be a disaster. No, no injuries because of the pins. Right. Well, that's good. Now you you play. You said you played. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? It. Uh, Were yeah. you? De- would you say you were decent? Fine. You're fine. I was serviceable i i feel like so i played baseball and soccer and i split my time between both so i was never good enough at one of them to be excellent i was decent enough at both of them to be you know good at both of them so mm-hmm. the tragic part was soccer and baseball were at, in the same season at my high school and so i had to pick one to play in high school and i picked soccer instead of baseball in hindsight probably should have played baseball i think i feel like yeah just being around the sport more and learning about it uh, as I grew older, I feel like my skill level has increased, I guess. I don't know. Like I would love my friends and I here in Bellingham, there's a, there's a hardball league. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I would love to get a group of friends together to play hardball instead of softball, because I feel like my skills have grown since little league, which is, I don't know. It's a weird thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, your physical your physical talent has probably improved uh, yeah, as well. That's fair, but like yeah. little league is that foundational time where you're like where you're building those skills, and so I don't know. I feel like uh, without that foundation, it it's a lot harder to to learn those skills when you when you've grown older. I've reflected on this briefly. I have no I have no real regrets because uh, I was never going to become a professional baseball right. player. <laughs> but I did, for example, in high school, I played. And I had uh, n- nothing to speak of in terms of, of breaking ball, but I did have a change. I actually had a, a decent change up. There you go. Um, but I did not understand. Like I didn't. Like I actually was just like, yeah, I guess I have this change up. But I was just. It was more. I was just embarrassed that I didn't have any kind of breaking pitch. Um, <laughs> so the change up I just regarded as like a thing that it, that I could throw sometimes. But I did not understand. Uh, I'd say I did not understand much about sequencing. Sure. Uh, or any right, the of art of pitching. Of yeah, right. It's just a, a colossal lack of uh, common sense. As I think. <laughs> With looking back uh, on it, just in, in, in not just common sense, but also any sort of um, any sort of real um, analytical approach too. Just a real mm. nothing out there. 
It's <laughs> a real dummy, and also not particularly physically talented. So it was, uh, it was a real. It's like the trifecta of mediocrity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but then again, uh, fortunately, you're playing against people with who've, uh, I guess, given similar lack of thought to, to yes, the game exactly. as well. So that's that's the saving grace, I guess. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's that's tough. So any good, uh, like uh, going through Little League, any good sponsorships for your teams? Sponsorships? Uh, I mean, yeah, it, did you have like the um, Potawatomi Casino Braves? I honestly been, can't like remember. We played no. in a tournament of champions i guess we won the championship for our league one season and so we were invited to this tournament and we had to change our uniforms i think we were we were like most little leagues we were like representing a major league team so we were the Mm -hmm. yankees that year Mm -hmm. which i hated that was the worst were you like the is it this like shoreline little league yeah the uh richmond richmond little league richmond little league and so when we went to this tournament we had i think we had to change our uniforms we like we couldn't they, I guess they didn't have the license for MLB team names and logos or something. I don't know. It was weird. Anyway, we we were the purple team instead. And so we called ourselves the purple people eaters because we were 10 years old and that was cool. And then <laughs> it was also the name of a song and I think a uh, an identity endorsed or at one point adopted by the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, you're right. The purple people eaters, yeah. And then uh, when did you first... Uh, discover, I guess, uh, baseball analysis. Like, what were the sort of nation stages of that? Yeah, I've often tried to figure out when I first started reading. Like, I I think my first exposure was probably Lookout Landing. I guess it was before it was Lookout Landing. It was Leone for third. And then USS Mariner. Both of those two blogs were sort of my introduction into this baseball analysis world. It had to have been in college probably so probably 2004 2005 something like that maybe even yeah anyway something like that and i think it was it was just this desire to to learn more like i really value learning and education mm-hmm. when i like something when i when i have interest in something i usually the first thing i do is learn everything i can about it <laughs> and and that are you a completist very much yes yeah yeah so for baseball, it was just digging deeper. And so like I I knew all of these like box score stats, like I would read the paper every morning and look at the box scores and just look at the numbers and try and figure them out. But knowing that there was a, a deeper level to the just those like service level stats uh, mm-hmm. was really interesting to me. And yeah, I, I mean, I've always been good at math. I almost got a math minor in college, but got to the theory level and then drop because i math theory is insane but so combining math and and baseball and sort of this this uh like sort of unseen or hidden level to the game was really fascinating to me and so do you remember like what your first uh i don't know the applications you mentioned leone for third and Mm -hmm. here's what i know about it that jeff sullivan was what he was engaged in that did he did he start it Jeff Sullivan, Jeff Sullivan, Fangraphs.com. But I haven't, uh, um, I'm not sure I've ever bothered to pursue that with him. So that was what? I bet he has plenty of stories about it. (laughs) (laughs) So what was, uh, I guess, I mean, Justin Leone was a baseball player. I assume he he was on the Mariners at one point, I assume. Yes. He was a third baseman. And I guess Jeff wanted him to play third. Yeah. Did he ever play third? Do you know? Uh, I think he had a call up or two, but never any extended time. And I think it was a combination of uh, sort of like this, like like the classic quad A player plus injuries. I think prevented him from making a, an impact. Yeah, he uh, he eventually he actually did get uh, a little over a hundred plate appearances with the two thousand four Mariners. It looks like there we uh, go. And he, he quitted himself decently, I guess. Nearly a league average line, which for a third baseman is pretty good, I guess. But uh, not a star. It turns not out. a star. No. And so, do you remember like the first? Because when you find out, when you first discover some of the advanced metrics, it's mm-hmm. a little bit like a decoder ring, right? <laughs> right. And you're like, oh, you know, because I've been this whole time, as you said, like I've been like looking at the box scores and I know that there's something in the numbers mm-hmm. that if viewed properly, if manipulated correctly, will reveal the capital T truth. Sure. But 
and I have some, you know, you, you say to yourself, I have some suspicions as to how that might go, but I don't know actually. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you do, you start reading the work of others and maybe, you know, those others have read the work of others, others. Mm-hmm. And uh, you start, um, you start realizing, I don't know. And like, I mean, uh, what for some time, Bill James would do the, um, uh, the Ken Phelps all-stars, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like a, which is like a real basic version of this, which is here's a collection of players who, by means of my Dakota ring, I have identified as perhaps uh, meriting more of a chance than they've received thus far. They're better than you think they are. They're better than you think they are. And then there are certain players, you know, for example, certain versions of former Phillies first baseman Ryan Howard were this type (laughs) of player Mm -hmm. who are who are generally regarded as very good, but who are good in all the ways that tend to be you know, overvalued and not particularly good in the ways that tend to, to be overlooked. Sure. Um, so I'm wondering if you, if you have any memories, you're like sort of earliest ways in which you used your decoder ring, or you had uh, sort of epiphanies about what ought to be happening, what, what Jake Mailhot said ought to be happening. Yes. Honestly, it's it's for quite selfish reasons. I was my friends and I were playing a lot of fantasy baseball at the time and I wanted to beat them. And so I was looking I think I was looking for any advantage I could get over just just looking at like whatever the categories were that we were playing with at the time. I wanted to know, okay, so if these categories there has to be something more than just these categories, right? All of these numbers have they're all connected in some way. And so if I can dig deeper than this surface level and figure out who is, who's actually performing better than, than they might seem or who is being overvalued based on what their surface numbers might indicate, then, then I can be my friends at fantasy baseball. And do, do you remember any, uh, <laughs> were there any players that you, who were a key to, to victory in fantasy baseball that you feel like you identify that you're, dumb friends were unable to (laughs) (laughs) not to say that your friends were i mean ryan howard's a great example because he was like we 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 never played with the standard categories we never played five by five categories we always added like ridiculous categories like some of them like like on base percentage and slugging percentage those are becoming more standardized in the fantasy circles but we would play with like fielding percentage and just and like batter strikeouts and batters grounding into double plays and just ridiculous things like that because we were young and thought we were really cool. So Ryan Howard was one of those players that was overvalued and maybe he was valued properly in that in a five by five fantasy league because he hit a lot of home runs and earned a lot of RBIs. But in our leagues, he was way, way overvalued because he never got on base besides hitting those home runs and he wasn't a great fielder, so his fielding percentage was bad, even though fielding percentage is such a poor indicator of defensive prowess. But it's it's like those types of things where, yeah, where someone who might be who's being talked about and written about in a in like the sort of standard fantasy circles like you would read on uh Yahoo or or ESPN wouldn't match what their value would be in our league because we were we were being different. You're, it sounds like you were being different and not necessarily different in a way that uh, represented how baseball is actually played or like what, what actually – because fielding percentage, while – I mean obviously it has some value some. Um, in terms of assessing a player's defensive skill because if it were zero – if fielding percentage were zero, for example, it would be hard to hold down a major league job. But <laughs> If every single opportunity you had to make <laughs> a defensive play was an error, oof. Yeah. So you were just looking you, – you were looking for – what I guess what a different um, a different way to interact with the game it sounds like yeah I think so where are these friends from were these college friends high school friends high school friends yeah high school friends are you still is that league still exist not currently it we tried to revive it a few years ago and there just wasn't that much interest mm-hmm. I think we had four people in the league a couple of years ago which isn't much of a league at all. No, I can't remember the. I think the last time we had a, a, a like a full slate of teams in the league was probably oh, eight or nine years ago. And now you said uh, you said you went away to college with a with a view to being a teacher. Mm-hmm. 
What were you What were you going to teach? Or history. were you You're going to teach history? Yeah. Well, so, well but what's the What's was, the track? You show up and you say, "I want to get a degree in what uh, education or something like this." There's multiple tracks. I chose to. Uh, I've I got my master's in teaching, so I have an undergraduate degree in history, and then I did a master's program to get my certification and all the like the sort of the pedagogical training. Yeah, and then. And so you did it all? Mm-hmm. And did, did you teach? I substitute taught for about two years, and that sucked a lot. <laughs> Wait, substitute teaching, that's like you don't necessarily know if you're going in the next day. They'll call you at 530? Yeah, exactly. Oh. Being in the classroom was great. Like I, And eventually I, I, I built relationships with a few teachers, and so I was sort of like the regular sub that they would call on whenever they had to go out. So I would build these relationships with classrooms as the year went on. But yeah, having no idea if you're going to work the next day was, was not fun. It was, that was rough. Yeah. Especially if you, uh, if you like to drink heavily. Was that, was that right, a pastime Waking up at five in the morning to check the subboards is, uh, doesn't, is not conducive to a, a late night lifestyle. It's not. No, no, no. My, I know my wife did, um, some, substitute teaching for a while and it did seem like it did it seemed like a huge bummer in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of the scheduling and then i guess what like if you don't if no one is called upon you then you just go back to bed yep That's not, uh... <laughs> and then just hang out the rest of the day yeah and maybe you'll maybe you'll well you gotta drink in the afternoon that's really the secret to that yeah, that's fair is to is to ensure that you're drinking in the afternoon. Uh, and so then you stopped. What, uh, was it hard to get whether there were there fewer jobs than there were people who were qualified for the jobs uh yeah, there so Western has a has a great teaching program. It's probably one of the best in the state. And so there's just the market is inundated with really good teaching candidates and there just aren't enough teaching jobs in the in the area to sustain everyone wanting to stay. So I tried my best. I I subbed for 2 years. I tried to make connections within the districts around the area. Um and just I just couldn't make any headway. So eventually I was working, I was subbing and then also working part-time as like a, a facilities person at the company that I'm working for now. And so I was doing both of those things for a while. And then there was a job that opened up in the in their publications department. And I had a friend who was working for that department and he encouraged me to apply and I applied. And it was actually my familiarity with baseball and statistics that was one of many reasons why I got the job. The boss who hired me was was a big fan of Moneyball. He he wasn't such mm-hmm. a big fan of baseball per se. He was just a really big fan of Moneyball and this idea that you could analyze a market or a an idea and find these hidden areas that people haven't thought of or haven't paid any attention to and and then leverage them to come out ahead. And so because I had written about baseball, I had I was familiar with all these concepts that that Moneyball was espousing. He really appreciated that. You know, it's interesting you mentioned because so you work for tell me about Lex is it Lexum Press slash Lexum Press, yes. Yeah, go for it. Tell me. Yes. So um Faith Life is sort of this umbrella or organization that has many brands underneath it. Um, we make, um, Logos Bible software. That's one of our products. We do church presentation software, all sorts of things. We also have Lexum Press, which is our, a fully fledged Christian publishing house. Um, and we publish a full range of, of books from Bible studies to theological monographs to, we published our own Bible dictionary and, a and a study Bible. Yeah. Interestingly, the publishing house that's done a lot of the, maybe they still do the the uh, the Bill James annuals mm-hmm. is Acta Sports, but Acta Publications, the umbrella for Acta Sports, mm-hmm. is also a uh, a religious publishing house. Oh, I, had no I don't idea. know if uh, I don't know if they're technically a rival, uh, but um, <laughs> I forget I forget the the gentleman's name who who owns it, but it's I think I think it's the same same thing as uh, Acta Acta Sports Publications. You just took a a shine to Bill James's work, I guess. Is what happens, <laughs> but um. But a lot of that was being published. A lot of that was being published into that brand too. Yeah, ACTA in that case stands for Assisting Christians to Act. Oh, and it was uh, all published into that too. I'm not helping myself by by forgetting the name of the uh, 
of the uh, publisher himself. But is there? Um, but you mentioned that what what your your manager essentially mm-hmm. at Lexum Press or uh, yeah, he was the publisher at the time. The publisher at the time I was also interested in baseball. And I guess the question that I pose to you is: Do you think that there's something specific about the game that lends itself? To people whose, whose other responsibilities include publishing books of, uh, you know, in the Christian intellectual tradition. Hmm. I don't think there's any anything specific. I think it was more he was fascinated by this idea. Like at, at the time that he was the publisher, we were incredibly small. We were just starting out. And so our like the resources that we had to call on were were very limited. Um, and we were we were in the middle of two giant projects that were taking up all of our time away from publishing like sort of your normal standard book fair. So mm-hmm. he was looking for ways to sort of, I guess, take advantage of the market or or, or leverage the limited resources that we had to, to be successful in a market that had giant publishers like Thomas Nelson and Erdman's and all these other publishers that have been established for years and years and years. So, mm-hmm. yeah, his idea was like taking these ideas that Moneyball espouses, finding value in, in ways that your competitors aren't finding value to sort of get a leg up on them. So how acquainted are, are you then with, uh, I guess, the products that that Lexum is selling? Like, for example, The Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers. By Ben Myers, yes. I am very acquainted because I do marketing for basically every title that we publish. You do? Yes. So tell me, uh, well, well, this one, this was, this was, uh, this one's good. The beauty of the Lord theology as aesthetics. Yes. Jonathan that King is a little bit over my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there, so there's. Uh, What's the basic thesis? Would you guess? That is a great question. Um, and <laughs> I, I feel like if anyone who is listening and also works for Lexan Press and uh-huh. hears me stumble over these words right now, uh, will be yeah. very disappointed. Well, if you ultimately, if you need, we can uh, we can excise this. <laughs> we can we can move. It. So it's a you would say it is a uh, it's a sophisticated examination. It is a very deep theological monograph. Mm-hmm. It's very it's it's very narrow, and so it just goes far beyond my expertise. Was this the sort of thing that I could that I could read if I were at Union Theological Seminary, for example? Do you think they use it in classwork there? You probably could if you would like to. Um, yeah. <laughs> I suppose if you were in a theology class and yeah. that was the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. Ephesians. Whole book on Ephesians. A whole book on Ephesians. We have many wow. books on Ephesians, actually. What's going on in Ephesians? Ephesians? Um, yeah. Well, it's one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's an interesting letter because he's he's writing it to this church that's in Ephesus. And Ephesus at the time was a very, very diverse and almost, I guess the the contemporary analogy would be sort of like a Las Vegas. Uh, it was a Ooh. it was a city where there was just there was there was a, a lot going on, and so there's this church there that's sort of struggling to to find its place in this uh, very cosmopolitan city, and so Paul's writing to the church there to to encourage them and to yeah to help them sort of wrestle with their faith in the midst of uh secular society. How do you say Ephesus or Ephesus? Which one do you Ephesus. say? Ephesus. Ephesus. Yes. Ephesus looks like it's in uh what uh, is that modern day Turkey now? Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Paul was just writing to uh the Ephesians, huh? Hey guys. Hey guys. You're going to you're going to do it. <laughs> he uh yeah, so I mean Paul, the apostle Paul, he established churches. I mean, he he went on a number of journeys throughout the Mediterranean. And so he would establish churches and then sort of plant them and then move on to like further cities along his route. And then mm-hmm. so these letters are sort of his way of keeping in touch and and encouraging those churches that he had planted before. To keep their eyes on the prize, as it were. That's right. Huh. And uh, what is everyone... So you have a... Perhaps there's like a small community of Christians in Ephesus... And mm-hmm. then there's everyone else. Are they so? Uh, what kind of? Uh, what would they have been at the time? What what faith would they have had at the time? If we're talking like there would have been a lot of sort of like the the Roman like emperor worship, mm-hmm. I guess that you could call it. Because I mean that's it's at he's, Paul's writing at the time of the 
the height of the Roman Empire, there would probably be, I would think there'd probably be some Jews, probably not many since it's in Turkey. And so um, wait, this was a, was it, it was a Roman magazine. I mean, at certain points, probably everything was Roman, wasn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a Roman city. Pretty large footprint. Yeah. They did a really good job at uh, taking things over. For what and I, I think gathered. like the, the, like the main like temple in Ephesus was a temple to Artemis. I think it was Artemis. I can't remember. Anyway, there was a, there was a large, there was like one of the largest temples in the ancient era in Ephesus. It was, oh, yeah. yeah, it was destroyed sometime ago. Anyway. I will. So I, I grew up Catholic and, uh, mm-hmm. I did too. Um, Fancy oh, you did. Yeah. And so I'm familiar with a lot of it, but I would not say that I was never, I was never a Paul fan for some reason. Interesting. Yeah. But I, it's, it, it could be t- entirely my fault as well. <laughs> uh, there seem to be a number of people who are sufficiently excited by Paul. I guess I liked probably some of the. I was probably drawn to some of the more. Uh, I don't know. It wouldn't necessarily be non-canonical, but like um, uh, some of the writings to follow the. Uh, what's the book of the uh, Orthodox wisdom? The Philokalia. That's exactly what I mean. The Philokalia. Ah yes, is, is I that, am is unfamiliar. That, yeah, uh, I had a, I'm not going to make any great statements about it at this point, but uh, <laughs> you know, roughly seven years ago, I was very invested in it. There we go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it had it had it has authors like Evagrius the Solitary mm. and Saint Diodocus of Photoki. Mm, yes, you know, I, I am unfamiliar with both of them. Although, seeing as he, he's solitary, I I am surprised anyone's familiar with him. Yeah, I think he was, I think his works remain. They're not alive anymore. Yeah. Mm. They're pretty dead, the um, these guys. But uh, yeah, they were written as like little uh, little sentences. Uh, they called them sentences, or you know, they're little uh, they're little epigraphs essentially. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my understanding, um, again, not a very strong understanding, but uh, what the monks would do essentially is to read uh, to read a line or two, and then they would go about their work for the day. But they would sure. always have these lines in their heads, and they'd kind of like mold them over at the same time. So it was sort of like a daily reflection. Yeah, I think that that was one way it was certainly used. The various yeah. writings in it. No, as a Catholic, I was I was just uh, pretty bad at that. <laughs> just a bad, just a run in the middle bad cat. Just you know, I went to church every Sunday and did did not care for it. It's also possible that um, I did not grow up in a parish that was um, might have been more uh, intellectually might have been more stone than bread. Mm, that yes. makes sense. That's a metaphor, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wait, did you like? Are you still a Catholic? I guess, I mean, technically, yes. Technically, I have not been excommunicated by the church. Oh, they'll never let your membership is good for life. <laughs> it's kind of like a citizenship in the United States, you know. That's right. They'll hold, they'll keep you around. No, I, I suppose, like, I guess technically, yes, but uh, no, I do not attend mass um, every week. I do attend no. a, a non denominational church here in town, though. Yeah, they tend to be different than Catholic churches, huh? Very, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like the yeah. complete opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were, um, I know there was always, um, my dad and my grandparents, when I would go with them, they were always very concerned about what I was wearing to church. Mm, yes. And I've noticed in non-denominational churches, there tend to be more, uh, uh, less emphasis on that, maybe. Right. You can wear basically whatever you want. You want, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, mostly just the priest talks to you and he's like, that's what I said. Now you can go home. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I said it, now you go home. Yes. Um that was kind of how it was. I mean, that was in the 80s and 90s, but um I think that when like my father's generation was young, it was just Latin being spoken at the altar. Mm. And it wasn't even even an acknowledgement of the people behind the priest. And they were just there. They were they were observers. Right. That yeah. we um my wife and I when we got married, we honeymooned in Paris and we went to a mass in Paris because we were we were just walking around on on a Sunday and happened to be right next to uh, I forget which church it was. It was it's it's the oldest Catholic church in Paris proper. Yeah. And so, so we pretty, went in uh, and witnessed the mass and it was yeah. all in Latin. Yeah. How did that go? I mean, it was fascinating because we were in this ancient church and like the congregation was like regular people. And that felt weird in this like historic monument that, mm. I don't, yeah, it, it was it was sort of this like this weird juxtaposition of this like ancient church and then a tr- like a very traditional mass in Latin and then 
like two-year-old kids running around with shovels in their hands and like families it, yeah it was it was bizarre but it was really it was quite an experience yeah catholicism can be weird right because it seems to actually at its height like it se- seems to benefit from a sense of mystery and mm-hmm. um and cultivating a sense of mystery and a lot of the old cathedrals are really good at doing that sure in a way that maybe some of like the american versions of the church are not we sort of have like this hybrid of the more kind of like plain protestant style <laughs> very buildings. bright yeah, buildings, and whereas, like, yeah, you've, if you go into a centuries-old cathedral, everything's stone, and there are artifacts, and mm-hmm. there's like probably like a saint's bones somewhere right. in the, in the <laughs> just, basement, just buried somewhere. Yeah, then you, f- I think that you feel a sense of uh, you feel transported, maybe a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. which can happen, and, and I think that pairs with just the like the the rhythms of mass, right? Mass is it's been practiced the same way for thousands of years and and those traditions and and the liturgy of mass are are meant to evoke those sort of ideas of mystery and and wonder and awe yeah so on the topic of um religious religion religious experience tell me a little bit about your relationship with edwin diaz edwin diaz yeah does he facilitate religious experience for you? <laughs> I think uh, when he, yeah, he, when he is controlling his pitches, when he can throw his fastball where he wants it to be, mm. it, it can border on on that that sort of experience. Because you wrote so during your residency, you wrote four pieces, mm-hmm. and there you really wrote actually two of them about Edwin Diaz because one of them is about Edwin Diaz. Sure, that was the first one, and then the mm-hmm. fourth and final one you wrote. <laughs> Is about Sir Anthony Dominguez, which is a but it's an awesome really name. <laughs> it's really right. It is yeah, but it's really about Edwin Diaz. Yes, so you found and a maybe you the, found a way to the write next iteration Ed- of Edwin Diaz. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I I assume that at that at some level you're um you, you possess fascination with him. That um he's important to you at some level in terms of the uh, if we were going to talk about the theology of aesthetics, which I know is one of your favorite topics. Mm, yes, um, <laughs> and you're I, you're quite expert in it to the point where. <laughs> <laughs> you're familiar. You're familiar with all angles, the theology of aesthetics, um, or maybe it's the aesthetics of theology at this point. I, I think no it one, can go no either way, quite, both ways. Yeah, yeah. No one quite knows um, that Edwin Diaz would seem to represent something like that for you. That might be like one of the reasons why you watch, essentially. Yeah, I think Edwin Diaz. He has this element to him that is very visceral. It's just the like his his mechanics, the way he whips the ball towards the plate. I mean, he throws a fastball at 98 miles an hour. He throws a slider at 90 miles an hour. Just There's just something so raw and energetic about him that, yeah, it's incredibly fun to watch. So when when he's on, he's is completely unhittable. And so and, and that's always fun as a as a fan, because then, you know, like when there's when there's a lead in the ninth inning and Edwin Diaz is pitching, you're pretty much guaranteed to win. And so that's I mean, that's always that's always a good thing. Yeah, you pointed out that Diaz is interesting in the sense that, and this was this was the the last piece you wrote because of how the Mariners chose to use him to some degree, mm-hmm. right? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. He he had been a starter for most of his minor league career. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that he's done any starting as a major leaguer. He has not. No, he, he was was converted to the bullpen in mid season. Mm-hmm. and found his way to the majors within a couple of months after being converted to a reliever and has quickly accumulated a bunch of high leverage innings and he's obviously the Mariners closer now so it was sort of it was a whirlwind of role changes for for Diaz within a single year now so like, i guess uh, what i might call sabermetric orthodoxy would suggest mm-hmm. that if you have a pitcher and also just baseball orthodoxy if you have a pitcher who can start mm-hmm uh, who has exhibited the ability to do that, then you should allow him to keep doing that until he proves he can't, right? And it doesn't really seem, based on the numbers alone, I mean, he was, Edwin Diaz was, was quite good as a 21-year-old at AA. Mm-hmm. And then he was also quite good once again as a 22-year-old at AA where he did some starting and some relieving. But mm-hmm. but the season before he had been, or really up till then, he'd been exclusively a starter. Right. So that's, on the one hand, you you might say, well... Reasons suggest that he should continue in this role. However, there have been examples in recent years of players producing considerable value out of the bullpen. In fact, Travis Sawcheck just wrote a piece this week about Josh Hader, who actually oh, yeah. has mm-hmm. followed 
it's a, it's a similar path, really, because he had put up very good minor league numbers. He doesn't have, I think, I think he has quite the arm speed that the Diaz has, but obviously he's been super effective. He's been mm-hmm. and he's been worth two wins in a bullpen role this year. And I think that uh, you know the conclusion in which Sachik arrives is that in, in which the the Brewers seem to maintain is that he's fine. Just leave him there. Leave him yeah. in that relief role. Well, I mean, we're sort of entering this era in baseball where the bullpen is more, much more important than it's ever been, right? I mean, the the Rays are sort of like that prime example of, of like that cutting edge of what a bullpen could be in the future. And so if teams are going to be leaning on relievers as openers or as sort of these firemen bridges between like a five-inning start and the back end of the bullpen – then players like Josh Hader or or even like, I mean, Edwin Diaz, when he first came up, he was sort of that fireman role where he would pitch an inning or two in the middle of the game to bridge that gap between the starter and, and the closer at that point, Steve Ciszek. So mm-hmm. th- those types of players are definitely going to become more valuable in the game as teams continue to innovate. With, just with regard, I'll, I'll let you go momentarily because I know that you're a person who has a real life and uh, I've kept you here for an hour already. <laughs> As we talk today, the Seattle Mariners, in probably what I think some would regard as a surprise, have the best record in the American League West. That is a surprise, yes. And uh, now, by by the percentages, they are not the favorites to win the division still, at least according to Fangraph's playoff odds model. Right. Despite the fact that they're in, in the lead by a game, they have they still have only a 4% chance of winning the division, <laughs> is it really according that to that model. I've... I feel like it should be a little bit higher than that. Yeah. Well, and I think that those are both valid in their own right. Mm-hmm. I think that if you insisted they should be lower, you would be wrong. But if you feel like they should be, or they <laughs> you feel like it should be higher, then I think that's a fine way to thinking it. Sure. I think that those things can coexist. But they've been. But it doesn't matter. They have the wins, and they and they do have slightly better than a fifty percent chance of making the playoffs. And I think it's all better than uh, where they were in the preseason, which was so they have a they had a they have over slightly over a fifty percent chance of making the playoffs. Now is under ten percent to begin the season. Right. Obviously, the Astros accounted for a lot of that, but the the Angels were also favored above them. So were the Twins, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They absolutely were. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a surprise, I guess, uh, in a very like in a very general way. How do you? What's your appraisal of the season to date? It's been probably the f- the most fun I've had as a fan. Probably, I mean, there have been fun seasons in the recent past. Like 2014 was fairly fun, just because it was sort of that's the sort of same deal where the Mariners played way above their heads and and made it really interesting until the very last day of the season. But this team, the just the players that um, that we've accumulated, like D. Gordon and Ryan Healy, these players with larger than life personalities, and then combine that with winning in just absolutely unexpected ways, uh, has made this season a blast to follow. I think, uh, yeah, it, the team is. I mean, <laughs> this has been discussed nonstop on Mariners Twitter about their run differential and whether or not they're going to regress back to where they sh- should be. I'm using air mm-hmm. quotes. You can't see me right now, but I'm using air quotes when they, no, when I can't, they say should can't be. See you. Yeah. No, it would be haunting if I could see you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we I have the technology. We can do it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this whole time, if I'd been doing that, that would be wrong. Yes. That would be wrong. Yeah. We've taken care of business in May. The Mariners have banked all of these wins. And so the margin for error is, has grown exponentially uh, as each win is banked. And so even if they end up playing 500 baseball for the rest of the season, that's we're still 15 games over 500 by the end of it. So and I think that puts us into a great position come September. And it'll yeah, it'll be really fun to see where we end up. The Mariners do not have a lot of dependable starting pitchers. Ah, see, you say that, and then Marco Gonzalez comes out of nowhere and puts up <laughs> an amazing half season already. Yeah, I no, I I say yeah, yeah, yep. Marco Gonzalez is, has performed well, but if James Paxton were injured, <laughs> that would be a disaster. It would not be good for them. I think. What is Marco Gonzalez doing? And I asked this as someone who, while technically employed as the managing editor 
of a baseball analytics website has also not thought a lot about Marco Gonzalez. That's too bad. I, maybe I should have written a um, a post about Marco Gonzalez because he's uh, he's been fascinating. I think the biggest thing for Gonzalez is that he's finally healthy after his uh, Tommy John surgery. I think uh, he's he's two years re- removed now. So I think his arm strength is back to where it uh, was when he was um, one of the Cardinals' top prospects. Is he a product of Gonzaga? Yes, he is. Go oh, with okay. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought, yeah. He's throwing a cutter this year, um, and that's a pitch that um, I don't. I'm not sure if he had thrown it uh, when he was with the Cardinals organization. But he's he didn't throw it last year when he was with the Mariners, and he's using it around 20 percent of the time I think uh, this year. And it's it's been a really key pitch for him because it keeps right-handed batters honest. He cuts it in on their hands, and so um, it looks like his fastball and and when they swing and make contact, they'll. Hopefully it, it saws saws off their contact. His changeup is probably one of the better changeups in the game, and so that combination of a good changeup and a cutter limits his sort of the extreme platoon splits that we might see with a, a left-handed starter. And I think he's yeah he's shown good control with his with his pitches. Uh, I mean, as evidenced by his walk rate, but yeah, I think he just he has a better feel for his pitches. He knows where they're going to end up. And, and I think that gives him a lot of confidence on the mound. Hey, Jake Mayhaw, do you feel like I've, I've asked you everything I, I should ask you? Is there anything I've omitted, do you think, of, of great importance? Uh, I mean, it all is basically meaningless in the end, but uh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we, I, we covered a lot more than I thought we were going to cover. Yeah? Yeah. I didn't. I honestly didn't expect to talk about my family as much as we did. And I didn't expect to talk about... Uh, the theology of aesthetics or the aesthetics of theology. Yeah, whichever one it is, you're going to get to the bottom whichever. of it. I have, I have a feeling. Yeah. Do you think that yes. this uh, conversation has prompted you maybe to take an, just another maybe 10 minute look at that book so you can at least have an <laughs> yes. elevator pitch for it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I should probably do that. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Especially since I am thinking I need to write a blog post about it in the next couple of days. And so yeah. I should probably figure out what exactly I'm writing about. I feel like you didn't you didn't necessarily you didn't necessarily market it super effectively in this particular <laughs> conversation. No, that is that is true. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows if you say the right words, you could get big sales out of that book. That is true. You just never yeah. know who's going to listen to the uh, Fangraphs podcast. What's the biggest seller over at Lexham Press? There's a, a book called The Unseen Realm. It's by Michael Heiser. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about the sort of this, the worldview that the ancient writers of the Bible had that is lost in translation 2,000 years removed. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, it's digging into like the historical background of the time and this worldview that took like these, the the supernatural phenomena of the world very seriously and sort of bringing that worldview into the modern era where the supernatural is not taken very seriously. Oh yeah. Why wasn't Eve surprised when the serpent spoke to her? Yeah. That's a good point. That is a good question. I'm sure that Michael Heiser addresses that in his book. Yeah. A snake starts talking to you and you just you just engage it's, in conversation. It's totally fine. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. You don't say you don't say, first of all, you're a snake. <laughs> Why are you talking? Why are you talking? Yeah. That might be in the director's cut of the of the Bible. That's true. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot more. Have you seen the outtakes? No. <laughs> where are the biggest where are the biggest laughs? New or Old Testament? What do you think? Oh, probably in the Old Testament. There's some wonky, crazy stuff that happens in the Old Testament. Yeah. All right. Well, if you could, when you come across some big, there is one where, um, in the Old Testament, uh, a bear mauls mauls some children. (laughs) I yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. You're not familiar with that one? Do you think it's a, the Bible bear uh, mauls mauls (laughs) children? I think I think of yeah yeah the two bears yeah here it is. Two, I'm, it's I'm in Kings. It's, oh, in, okay. it's in two Kings, mm-hmm. 2.24. Yeah, I don't have the, uh, suddenly two female bears. Yeah. So I think that Elisha, Elisha was mocked. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And it says from there, he went to Bethel. And as he was walking, a group of young men came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Oh, what a, what then, an insult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't, well, maybe uh, Michael Heiser gets to the bottom of it. It could have been something much more filthy. 
Mm, yes. Um, then he turned around, he looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then suddenly, so this is quick turnaround on the curse. Yes, suddenly. Suddenly, two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the young men. Oh, boy. There, there were 42 of them? <laughs> that's a crowd. <clears throat> that seems, that seems, that's more than an eye for an eye. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, they didn't even take his eye. They just said he was bald, which, you know. He he was bald. He maybe had um, some self-esteem issues. I think he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He he cursed them, and then two bears came out. Also, now let me defend Elisha here, or at least speak to some of the 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 failings of these young men. (laughs) Two bears killed forty-two young men. Yes, they. um, It's like one of those "Would you rather" questions. Like, would you rather fight one giant bear? 42 small bears. Well, there's two bears and 42 men. But don't you think, you know who the most, the most embarrassing of these is the 42nd kid. If you've seen 41 <laughs> people slain before you. And, and you're still there. And you're still, what, hanging out? <laughs> or was he just a, I can't believe this? Maybe it was, um, the bears were just so efficient that they had no time to react. And I guess it's true. I mean, they are, we're meant to believe that they are sort of uh, divinely sent. Yeah. Right. And they are bears. You, bears are killing machines, as we all know. So. Yeah, but 42 is a lot. That is true. 42 is a lot. Yeah, I think I've come across some good illustration of this somewhere. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> of this the particular story. Yeah, you could you go ahead and check it out. I will, go ahead and check I will it out. put good, that into my search engine, and I will... Good illustrations. It. Do you think that uh, Lux and Press might be interested... Um, in the near future, and writing about this this incident in Bethel, or on the way to Bethel, at least you could certainly um, submit a manuscript, and we'll take it under consideration. We actually we have a a book coming out. Uh, it hasn't mm-hmm. been fully written yet, so it's probably a year or two away. But it is it's it's a book about the the humor in the Bible, and I really hope that this story is part of is one of the things that he brings up in his manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Ask him about the forty second kid. Yeah. You don't want to be that kid. All right. <laughs> Let's end this. We can talk for a moment after. But for the moment, what I'll say is thank you, Jake. And you say you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And then I say uh, that has been Jake Mailhot of, well, not only Fangraph's uh, resident for the month of May, but also writer, contributor, maybe an editor to Lookout Landing. Does that sound right? That's right. All right. I'm Carson Stewie. This has been Fangraph's Audio.